Uh, in life, there are two kinds of people. In this world, two kinds of people. There are morning people and those who are not morning people. There are people who put their tomato sauce all over their chips and those who put it on the side for kind of dipping in. Uh, there are those who hang the toilet paper properly and those rightly labelled monsters. Uh, it's even worked its way into marketing that was mild degree in stews. And you might remember the ad from a few years ago uh, where they compared PC to Mac. And you know if it was filmed in Australia, it would be PC and stew. It's not, a, not only a modern phenomenon dividing the world into two groups. In the ancient world, in the time of the Bible, uh, the Roman Empire which ruled the world, they, they considered themselves to be Greek, not nas- by nationality, but the, the heirs of Greek philosophy and learning and governance and, and everyone else were barbarians. Uh, and the people of Jesus, the Jews, they viewed themselves, they were the Jews and everybody else the Gentiles, the great unwashed, as it were. And really, in all of this, it's all about us and them. We're the good guys, and they are not. Uh, this Today, as we come and look at the Scriptures, we are going to think about these two kinds of people, uh, the division not only that we make, and, and do they matter, but the division that God makes, uh, how He views us, and what we're going to see is that He views... He reveals and explains and shows how we really are uh, and in light of Jesus, see who He really is as well. So let's pray now, I'll lead us in prayer and we'll ask for God's help and then we'll dive into His Word. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You speak clearly and truthfully to us. You reveal how things really are, not simply how we think of them and like to think of them. And so this day, help us to hear You speak. Helps you changed and shaped in light of what we hear by your Spirit at work in us. We pray this all for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. This is the conclusion of Paul's argument that he's making through chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first part of uh, chapter 3. And you see something of that division there, don't you? We, are we, that is the Jews, are we any better? We have the law, we have the prophets, are we any better than them, the Gentiles? And his answer is no, not at all. All Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. Uh, This teaching would not have been popular in Paul's day. It's not popular in ours either. And I take it it's because it does not fit with how we view ourselves. Uh, It grates up against our understanding of ourselves. See, we we and and them back in those days, we like to think of ourselves, uh, we divide the world into us and them, into good people and bad people. Uh, maybe a spectrum even, you know, we'd put Mother Teresa down one end, you know, the pinnacle of goodness, uh, Hitler down the, the other end, he's the worst of the worst, and everyone else sort of fits somewhere in between. Uh, we say things and you hear things uh, like, I like to think of people as basically good. Uh, we think, oh, I'm good, my neighbours are good, we're all pretty good, and so, 
There may be a cutoff somewhere for bad people, but most of us, you know, maybe 93% of us, we're good and fine. We're not perfect, we're not saying that, but we're not bad like them. You know, child molesters and Hitler, they're the bad guys. The rest of us, we're all, we're all pretty good, aren't we? I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as them. And it's, if you can kind of, you know, child molester, you can think of uh, maybe some religious hypocrite as well, they're good to kind of shove down that end, and, and so we feel good about ourselves. We're... I'm good, I'm fine. Hey, you see something that is in the controversy that surrounded Israel Folau. He was asked on Twitter uh, what he thought of homosexuals and what was going to happen to them. And he said that uh, they would come under the wrath and judgment of God, that, that they would go to hell. And not that he was saying this, but people heard him saying that they are the bad people. So I'm good, people heard him say, I'm good, I'm fine, and they're the bad ones, based on nothing more than their sexuality, or their sexual preferences, or their behaviour, and so people said, you can't, you can't say that, you can't sort of call them bad, and, and lump them in with Hitler and the others, and so people reacted very strongly against what he was saying. I think because they misheard him, but that's how, they misheard him because that's how people think, that's how pretty much everyone thinks. There's always somebody kind of worse than you. There's always somebody bad and we, we, we're okay, we're good. In Jesus' day, the Jews, they, they too thought in these terms, but they thought along national and religious lines. We, the Jews, we're the good guys, we're God's chosen people, we've got the law, we've got the prophets, we've got circumcision, we don't eat pork and other things, we're the good guys, everybody else, they're the bad. In our society, we think 93% are good, in their day, no, just the Jews, and even then, they'd kind of kick a few people out, so Jesus is accused of eating with was it? Sinners and tax collectors. So you get rid of them, they're the bad guys, shove them down the end, we the Jews, we're fine. That's not how Paul says things are. That's not how God's Word says things are. All alike are under sin. There is no good and bad, Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter, you're all alike under sin. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like in verses 10 to 18. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. It goes on and on and we hear this and we think, that's too much. That's, that can't be right, can it? That doesn't sound like me and my family and my friends. It's, it's over the top. It's hyperbole. It's inaccurate. Now, I want to give you two examples to try and convince you that Maybe, just maybe, God's Word really does describe each and every one of us. I want to focus in on just one verse, verse 13. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Let, let's consider two examples. The first is the Banking Royal Commission. I don't know if you've been paying attention in the news, this is going on. The banks are under the spotlight about their practices and how they've been treating their customers. And what has been revealed very clearly is that the banks, in some instances, and banks are just an assortment of people, people have been, who work for the banks have been treating their customers poorly. Uh, it has been outrageous, some of the behaviour. The way they've exploited their customers has been truly appalling. And the heart, the nature of the treatment is because of deceit. It's been lies forgeries, misrepresentations, a withholding of key information, non-disclosure of conflicts of interest, claiming to be acting on a customer's behalf when in reality you're doing something completely different. 
What has been going on? Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. It's poetic, but accurate. Now, I don't know if you work for a bank, uh, but if you don't, you probably say, well, that's them, that's not me. I do know some people who work in the banking industry. What do they say? They say, it's not us and our division, it's them, that other department on the other floor or down the road. Not us, it's them. Let, let me make it a little bit more personal. Let's draw it home uh, a little bit more for you. If you're a, a married man or in a, re- a relationship, there's two sort of phrases that you really don't want to hear. The first is we need to talk. All right? That's because when you hear that phrase, you know you're in trouble, but you just didn't realise it, and now you're about to find out. Uh, the second one that you, you hate to hear is not so much, uh, you're, you're not in trouble yet, but it's a trap that will see you end up in trouble one way or another. Uh, it's so common, it's even, uh, even appeared in the, the TV show Friends. I, I'm much more of a, a Seinfeld kind of guy myself that chose my age. My wife really likes Friends, so being a good husband, I've seen every episode of Friends. It's not bad. It's not as good as Seinfeld, but it's not bad. But they, um, uh, the, que- the question is this, does my bum look big in this? All right? Now, it's a trap because there is no right answer. If you answer honestly, yes, dear, your bum does look big in that. It's like the backside of a Mack truck. We need a wide load sticker. I'll make a beeping noise as you start backing up. Then you're a dead man, aren't you? You'd never, you'd never do that. Not if you've got any sense. You will not survive. Uh, in the Friends episode, they say, if you even pause and think and consider that question, you're a dead man as well. You can't even think about it. Why? Because the question, there's a question behind the question. It's not, does my bum look big in this? Really, the question is, do I have a big backside? And unless you're Kim Kardashian and part of that, then the answer is no. You don't, no, no. So that's what they say. They say, just don't think, don't reflect, just say no, like a reflex. No, no, no. Now, the, the friends, guys, they've got no ethical qualms about lying. Uh, you might. And so then what you do is you say to yourself, it's, it's a white lie, right? I don't want to hurt her feelings. I, she, she feel bad and body image issues. So I'm doing it to protect her and help her. So I say, no, no, it looks great. That's a lie you tell yourself, isn't it? You're not protecting her or helping her by lying. No, no, you're protecting yourself because you know she'd kill you if you told the truth. See, that's the nature of lies, isn't it? Is you lie to protect yourself, to gain or get something. Uh, you might see it, uh, maybe not in this one, but around the house. You, if you're married long enough, you, you start to, your guard slips down a bit, and so you start kind of lying in front of each other. Yeah, so one of you is on the phone, and somebody calls up, and you hear the name, you know they don't really like them that much, and they suddenly say, oh yes, I'd love to come to that thing and do that thing you want me to do, and oh, I'll be there, not a problem, it'll be great. And you think to yourself, That's, they don't want to do that, they don't like them, why do they agree to that? Why would they lie? Well, it's because they don't. They want that person to think well of them. They're protecting their image and reputation. And then the other person gets a call and they say, look, I'd love to help you do that, but I've just checked my diary and there's a clash, I can't make it. And the other spouse knows full well that there is no clash in the diary, they just don't want to do that thing and so they've lied to get out of it. See, lies are about self-interest, protecting you 
and your reputation before others, trying to gain some advantage or something for yourself. That's why we lie, because we're driven by self-interest. In terms of the Banking Royal Commission, Ross Gittin's writing in The Age and the Herald, he says, amid all the reluctant truth-telling at the Banking Royal Commission, one big lie has yet to be apprehended. Shame-faced witnesses keep admitting they put their shareholders' interests ahead of their customers. Don't believe it. From the chief executives and company directors to those middling managers who seem to be the main ones being sent into the firing line, it's not the shareholders' pockets they've been so keen to line. It's their own. He's spot on, isn't he? Why do they lie? To line their own pockets for self interest. Their tongues practice deceit. Our tongues practice deceit. We lie to one another, we lie to ourselves out of self-interest. Verses 10 to 18, it does describe us. Poetic, yes, but accurate. God's Word is a light shone into the darkness. We might resist because we are living in the darkness, but God shines the light into those dark spaces. It is unpalatable, but accurate. All alike are under sin. There's no us and them, good and bad. All alike are under sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These are hard truths for us to hear, but they are the wounds of a friend designed to warn us and awaken us to the reality so that we might get the help and the healing that we need. Romans 1 to 3 paints the blackest of backdrops, a black picture of humanity. I've never bought a diamond. But I'm told that when, and I've seen the movies, when, when they display diamonds, what do they do? They put it on a black background so that the diamond stands out. Its brilliance is more apparent and can be apprehended. The black background of Romans 1 to 3 is there for us to see and apprehend and appreciate and enjoy Jesus all the more and the glory that is found in Him. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But now, see before, blackness, bleakness, hopelessness, helplessness, but now everything turns on this hinge. All alike are under sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, a righteousness from God. Dire circumstances, desperate need. But now, right standing, right status, right relationship. Please note, that very clearly and most pointedly, none of this is from us. Not our deeds, not our efforts, not our religion, 
not our intentions. It is all from God. It is His initiative, His plan, His execution of that plan on our behalf. It's from God and it's through the faithfulness of Jesus. We were sinful, Jesus was sinless. We were faithless, Jesus was faithful. And so we, as we apprehend this, as we appreciate this, as we see it for what it is, our response is one of faith or belief or trust in what Jesus has done for us. That is, we have the open hand that receives the gift. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. There is no difference. There is no us and them. All have sinned. And then all kinds of people can be saved. Uh, the three word, key words here are justified, redeemed, atoned. Three images, three examples, three explanations of what Jesus has done for us. A diamond, the more expensive it is, the more faces it has to reflect and reflect, refract light. Oh, you might like to think of these as, as kind of three faces of that wonderful diamond. Helm was appreciate Jesus and who he is. Uh, the first word, justification, is a legal word uh, from the law courts. Uh, in, in a criminal case, the judge would declare you innocent. You're justified. In a civil court, the, the judge might declare you adopted, brought into the family. The word redemption is taken from the marketplace. You're running short on cash, you take your favourite guitar to the pawn shop, they give you some money for it and they hold it. They hold it to ransom. If in a few weeks' time you can come back and you can pay the ransom price, they'll give you back your guitar, setting it free. Uh, in the slave market, you can pay the price, the redemption price, to set the slave free. Uh, that's the image here. Uh, and the third picture there is of atonement. That's, that's uh, temple language. Uh, we had a, a bit of the reading there in Leviticus of sin. That means there is bulls and goats and blood and sacrifice and, and sin being transferred and run away. The problem with the temple is that it did not work. You have to keep doing it again and again and again and again. But we're told here in the New Testament that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. Now, the word atonement, it's a made-up word. It literally means at one meant. Two parties are at war. A sacrifice of atonement puts them at one. It brings them back together. There is peace. We need to be clear. We are sinful. God is holy. A sinful people deserve wrath and judgment. But God longs to be merciful. So how can he be just and merciful? It's through Jesus. God's plan through Jesus. God himself in the flesh. Jesus who dies on the cross, who pours out his blood, who gives his life so that we can be justified, redeemed, 
atoned for. This is the very heart of the Christian message. This is the very heart of Christian understanding. It's why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, for God has done it all for us. And it's tragic, it's sad, that many do not know this. Some are ignorant of Jesus, of his person and work. Others, having heard, reject and deny. In the church I worked at a few years ago, there was a young man who told me that as he read of Jesus and his death on the cross, he wept. So moved was he. And then a few years later, he came to me and said, uh, I'm leaving it behind because I think Jesus' death on the cross, what's claimed of him, it's barbaric. It's, it's sort of old school. It's a God of wrath and I don't want anything to do with that. In regards to the, the, the people like him, who think this is sort of too old school for us modern day educated people, I want to say that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature and how we really are. That is, we can believe in, in non-violence because we live in a society where we can, if somebody wrongs us, what well, you call the police and you can trust them to arrest them and a court and a judge and uh, we've got a whole system that is, uh, they will take care of things. They will seek to bring some sort of justice to the situation. But that is because Christians and Christian thinking has permeated and affected our society. Uh, in other parts of the world, in other times of history, without those kinds of structure, what happens? What happens is you end up with a blood feud. You know, as the movie uh, The Untouchable says, you put what, they put one of yours in the hospital, you've got to put one of theirs in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's the Melbourne way, isn't it? That's what the, the TV series Underbelly was all about. One gang kills somebody from the next and so the cycle of violence goes on. You can put it on a national scale in, in the genocide that occurred in Rwanda. Two tribes at war massacring each other. Now, the Balkans, Sudan, Palestine and Israel. If there is no God, if there is no justice, if there is no uh, reckoning then you just kill like for like. That's how people are. That's how we work because we long for justice and we can't get it. We seek revenge. And the Christian theologian, uh, Miroslav Volf, he said, imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them we should not retaliate. And they would respond, why? It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. He's saying, only in a society such as ours can you say to people, don't react with violence to violence. But a Christian who understands that God is judge, God is just, he will deal with those who have wronged one another, he will put things right at the end, we can leave the judgment and the justice to him, we can trust in him to do that which is right, even if there is no justice now. But that's true not only of them, but of us as well. 
he would judge us except for Jesus and what Jesus has done. And so what we see in the cross is the justice and mercy of God. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and have the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That is God putting things right through Jesus, historically in the cross, promising that he would come again and put things right once for all. And so then in the here and now, there really are two kinds of people. There are those who are all alike under sin, deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And there are those that God has redeemed, justified, atoned for. There really are two kinds of people, non-Christian and Christian, unsaved, saved, unjustified and justified, unredeemed, redeemed not atoned for, at war with God and those who are at peace with Him because of Jesus. And for those who are saved, those who are redeemed, the difference, the contrast is and should be stark. If you live life without reference to God, if you live a life of self-interest, then you are the ultimate authority. And in that, you have to then construct meaning and significance for yourself. You see that in the way people live, don't you? They chase after money, or career, or sporting achievements, or sexual conquest, or whatever it might be, a chasing after it to, to make themselves something. The problem is the chase is hard and elusive. You might not get those things, and so you are a failure, and it breaks you. Or you might get those things and more, and you find what? They do not satisfy. Ecclesiastes calls it a chasing after the wind. Meaningless, meaningless. But for those who have been saved, who know it's not about them, but it's about Jesus and what He's done, then you can be secure in Him. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone. You have to create an identity for yourself because your identity has been given to you by Christ. You are His and in Him. You are secure, confident, changed and different. And so Paul will go on to say, where then is boasting? Because those who are insecure, they boast and brag. And they point to the things in their life or their achievements that give them joy, that give them happiness, that they need to speak of those things because that is where their security lies. In their house or their car or their job or their spouse or their kids or whatever it might be. But for the Christian, there is no boasting. None of the things of this world. We know that anything good we have has been given to us by God. And so in that, we are thankful rather than boastful. We point not to ourselves and our achievements, we point to God. And as we do that, as we speak of God and His goodness to us, we point people to Jesus, the ultimate good thing for us. And even though they may before have been ignorant of Christ, through us and our speech, they will hear of Him. 
and God willing, they'll turn and trust in Him as well. And we will give thanks, Christians will give thanks, even in hardship. We won't simply thank God for the good things, that's what other people do and they brag, we will find a way to thank God in hard times. I have a friend, a a man uh, who helped me greatly as I moved to Fiji to work in student ministry and just before, as we were moving and leaving Australia, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. They have three children and so she faced long treatment, Uh, the cancer was aggressive and the treatment did not work. Uh, She had a longer lifespan than they initially predicted but it it came to the point where she knew she was going to die and the treatment had failed to work. Uh, And she wrote an article that appeared sort of in a, a Christian magazine and was shared online and the title of which was called, I Thank God for My Cancer. Now that is, oh, it's an outrageous title, it's shocking and surprising and I know that there were tears and a crying out to God and an asking of why me but in the big picture she was able to see because she knew Jesus, she was able to see that God was still good to her even in the midst of cancer and even through the hardest thing she'd ever been through, the thing that would kill her and take her from a family, she was able to thank God for the work that he was doing in her and that was shared online as she spoke to doctors and nurses about her thankfulness in Christ, they too heard of Jesus, who he was and what he did for her and for us and the world when he died on the cross. Let's pray now and ask that God would work in us in just such a way, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you for your word, which reveals how we really are. It shines a light into those dark places of us. It it illuminates us and helps to think clearly of who we really are and how we really are before you. And in doing so, Lord, we thank you that it shines a light on Jesus. He is the light. He stands out against our darkness, that you sent him into the world and he came willingly to die that we might be justified, redeemed, atoned. We pray that would make all the difference in our lives and in our speech. In Jesus' great name, Amen. Now, my understanding is that uh, we have a question time now. I'm very happy to field uh, any questions. People to pop up their hand. Uh, I'm happy to take questions on, I guess, primarily the passage is normally how it's done. I'm happy to, I'm happy to take questions. Sorry? Ideally. Ideally, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, but all I'm saying is I'm happy to field other questions. So if you have a question about my family or a time in Fiji, if, if that's of particular interest to you and you want to know something about that, I'll try and keep the answers short. So if, if you ask me a question and I don't kind of give a, a full enough answer for you, please feel free to grab me afterwards. But your question is not necessarily everyone's question, so we'll aim for kind of it's good. short answers. Or we can just say come back for the house party. There you go, that's another um, way to do it. Have we got a question to start? Remembering that Tony's open it wide. Tony, you're going to get out of this pretty well. No, no questions? Don't want to ask anything about his life in Fiji? How he could have someone so beautiful marry him? No, nope, okay. Oh, you got one? You got one. Oh, got I was one about to say, two. either that was then really clear or really confusing, <laughs> one of the two, if you get no questions. Uh, having come back from Fiji, what, what are your plans now? What are you doing? <coughs> Yep, what, uh, yeah, our plans now. So we uh, came back in December 
Uh, and the way it works with our mission organisation, CMS, is you work for them for six months, sort of, uh, kind of the, fair, the John Farnham farewell tour. So I thought of it. So you go around and you thank everyone for coming and uh, for sending you and their prayers and their support. And so we did that, and then um, after six months, I've um, gone back to work for the church that I used to work for before we left. So I work for them one day a week. Uh, I help with the evening congregation, and I help with preaching and evangelism. Uh, and uh, it's one day a week, so it's a fairly light touch. And then the rest of the time, I work for an organisation called City Bible Forum, and they have a particular focus on evangelism in the city of Sydney. And I've been hired, they, they've got their hands on evangelistic Bible reading material coming out of the UK and they've gone, this is great, they've been using it for a few years but what they've uh, discovered is that almost nobody else in Australia knows about it and so they've hired me as kind of like their marketing manager to let uh, Australian Christians know about it and so it's designed so that you could read the Bible one-on-one with a non-Christian friend or colleague or family member and so uh, I have the privilege of going around sharing that with ministers, uh, providing training uh, and encouraging Christians to uh, read the Bible with uh, non-Christians. And Susie's a a full-time mum at the moment. That's good. Any other questions? Okay, thanks mate. Cool.